We found that BIA's original investigation was deficient in a way materially affecting its outcome because there was evidence related to the principal question of the officer's association with the Proud Boys, which BIA had not considered in its analysis. We further found that there was evidence in the investigative record that the officer may have lied, may have made false statements um, related to some of the events at issue around his association with the Proud Boys. And so we recommended that BIA reopen the investigation and consider all of the available evidence. They accepted that recommendation. They did reopen the investigation. Um, and when they did so, they reached findings that the officer had, in fact, made false and contradictory statements. And those are, those are BIA's characterizations of those statements. False with respect to one, contradictory with respect to another, um, that the officer had made false and contradictory statements about his associations with the Proud Boys, both to the Bureau of Internal Affairs and to the FBI. BIA did not bring an allegation, despite those findings, that the officer had broken the rule which prohibits false reports. And they mediated the outcome of that investigation to agree upon a 120-day suspension. Um, the collective bargaining agreements governing the, or covering Chicago police officers, um, say that in a situation like that, where a disciplinary case is mediated, that mediation agreement is binding on the department, except that the superintendent can review a proposed mediation agreement, and if he believes that separation from the department, firing an officer, is a more appropriate outcome, he can put aside the mediation agreement and pursue separation. <laughs> And welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. Off the top, there was a clip of our guest speaking. Our guest today is Chicago Inspector General Deborah Witzberg, former Deputy Public Safety Inspector General Deborah Witzberg, who's been on the pod and our live show many, many times. If you're listening to this, uh, first time listening to the pod, please subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, please smash the subscribe and like buttons. If you want to get involved in our work, cjpnation.org. And if you want to support our work financially, you can go to Patreon. There'll be links for everything in the pot for the show notes and on the YouTube hosting. Today, we feature a conversation with uh, Chicago Inspector General Deborah Witzberg about what we are referring to as this Cowboy boy cop. We're going to go deep into it here, but basically someone who got caught um, basically being involved in a FBI, I don't know if an FBI investigation is the right way, but I think that is, he got um, basically questioned by the FBI about his involvement in the Proud Boys. He was at one of their picnics or barbecues or something like that. And then he was also uh, participating on a Proud Boy social media group i believe it was in facebook i'm not 100 sure of that and when he was questioned by the fbi one of the things he never did was reported to the chicago police department which you're supposed to do and why didn't he do that because he knew well he thought this is chicago after all he thought it would get him in trouble and get him probably fired so he didn't report it there was an investigation they gave him like a five-day suspension or something like that this was internal affairs within the police department it was then uh, under statute, the uh, 
inspector general's office is supposed to review those investigations for how complete and thorough they were. They did. They said, no, 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 this was neither a complete nor a thorough investigation. And there are, there is evidence of other rules and fractions and that need to be investigated. They did an investigation, didn't really look at what the inspector general asked them to, but then came up with a mediated, which is a negotiated, basically a plea bargain in other terms, like a plea bargain where the officer would agree to 120 day suspension. As Deborah Witzberg will talk to you about, the inspector general said, no, there are, when they sent it back, they said, we believe there are, there is ample evidence of a rule 14 violation, which is filing a false report, whether oral or written. And internal affairs unbelievably said, yes, he, he gave a contradictory statement related to being questioned by the FBI. And then he gave a false statement, but it didn't somehow add up to a rule 14 violation. Unbelievable. So they didn't move the fire app. And as you'll well, as Whitsburg said off the top, the superintendent can, once it's mediated, it's out of the hands, except for, for the police accountability system, except the superintendent who can still overrule that and rule for, move for a firing, but not in Chicago. That just does not happen. This is amazing evidence of just how broken the police accountability system is in Chicago. Um, how internal affairs thought this was allowable is mind-boggling. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, not remember, but let me let you know that if, I didn't remember this, but maybe some of my audience do. This happened also with an Oath Keeper, a, a police officer who was also a member of the Oath Keepers, a Chicago police officer. And when questioned about through an internal investigation, he admitted membership in the Oath Keepers. Ladies, we're, ladies and gentlemen, we're recording this on February 7th, the, my part of this. The interview was done last week. The Oath Keeper has been convicted. The organization has been convicted of their participation in the failed coup, to, coup attempt in Washington, down, down the street from where I live, actually. This cop admits to being involved in the organization, to being a member that even seemed like, well, I went to some of their social media channels or something. I went and hung out at a party or something. I'm actually a member, and they didn't fire him. Once again, sign of a failed police accountability system. It also shows a failed, a total failure of the Chicago Police, police Superintendent David Brown and also a failing of Mayor Lightfoot. It's unbelievable that they didn't move to fire either of those people. So this is what Deborah and I chat about. It's a fascinating conversation, and I will be back with you after the interview is over. Deborah Whitsburg, thank you so much for jumping on the pod with us again. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. So ladies and gentlemen, as I said in the opener, we're going to talk about um, a case that's made a lot of headlines around an officer that is supposedly associating with white supremacist organizations, both online and in person. And we're going to talk uh, more specifically about that case. But I want to start with kind of like, what are the rules around this? Because I, while I agree with a lot of people, like, yes, we don't want cops in any police organization in the country associating with or being a member of a white supremacist organization, I think the idea that there's obviously a rule automatically against that and you can easily fire someone um, isn't, at least in my opinion, isn't so clear um, when this case first came up, I had Sharon Fairley, who used to run the Independent Police Review Authority and then stood up COPA, the Citizen Office of Police Accountability, if I got that right. 
Um, and we talked about the complicatedness involved in whether or not um, you can easily get rid of these people. And this case has a lot of twists and turns, and it is the epitome of Chicago um, and certainly the police accountability system, because one would think we could all get behind. My dog wants this guy fired, too. Pepper wants him fired, too. One would think we could get all behind a getting rid of an officer who has a badge and a gun who's associating with white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys, who, by the way, some members have just recently been convicted of. No, that's the Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys are still on trial for the insurrection. Okay. So, Deborah, can you help fill us in here? Are, is associating with members of a white supremacist organization by itself a fireable offense? So, I, this is a really important question. For purposes of this specific case at issue, I want to kind of go back for a second um, into the procedural history of how this came to us. And, and, and the reason I'm going to drag you, drag you through the weeds there is it sort of really, I think, really matters when we think about what went wrong in this investigation. Mm -hmm. um, so if you will indulge that, I, I want to no talk a little, a little bit about that. So um, in the Municipal Code of Chicago, in the powers and duties of our public safety section, one of the things that we are empowered to do is to review individual closed disciplinary investigations conducted by CPD's Bureau of Internal Affairs and COPA. And, and that is literally how it sounds. That's a case-by-case -case review, case file by case file. And we do those reviews for two purposes as laid out in our ordinance. And those two purposes are, one, to make any recommendations to inform and improve future disciplinary investigations. If we think there are things about the investigative system that could work better, you know, we can make, we can recommend those changes. But the second purpose and the one that's relevant here is for us to identify any investigations which we believe uh, have deficiencies which materially affect their outcome. That's the legal standard set out in the ordinance. And where we identify a deficiency materially affecting the outcome of an investigation, we are empowered to send it back to the investigating agency, basically, to recommend that they reopen it and, and address the deficiency. And so that's the sort of oversight channel through which this Proud Boys case came. And we looked at, back in, in 2021, uh, excuse me, in 2020, we looked at a closed Bureau of Internal Affairs investigation, which involved allegations that a CPD member was associating with the Proud Boys. And arising out of that investigation, BIA had sustained one violation, and, and I won't call it minor, but I will say it was not one of the kind of principal allegations dealing with association with the Proud Boys. BIA sustained on um, one of these, one of the other allegations at issue and recommended a five-day suspension for the, for the officer, for the police officer. We found that BIA's original investigation was deficient in a way materially affecting its outcome because there was evidence related to the principal question of the officer's association with the Proud Boys, which BIA had not considered in its analysis. We further found that there was evidence in the investigative record that the officer may have lied, may have made false statements um, related to some of the events at issue around his association with the Proud Boys. And so we recommended that BIA reopen the investigation and consider all of the available evidence. They accepted that recommendation. They did reopen the investigation. Um, and when they did so, they reached findings that the officer had in fact made false and contradictory statements. And those are, those are BIA's 
characterizations of those statements, false with respect to one, contradictory with respect to another, um, that the officer had made false and contradictory statements about his associations with the Proud Boys, both to the Bureau of Internal Affairs and to the FBI. BIA did not bring an allegation, despite those findings, that the officer had broken the rule which prohibits false reports. And they mediated the outcome of that investigation to agree upon a 120-day suspension. Um, the collective bargaining agreements governing the, or, or covering Chicago police officers, um, say that in a situation like that, where a disciplinary case is mediated, that mediation agreement is binding on the department, except that the superintendent can review a proposed mediation agreement, and if he believes that separation from the department, firing an officer, is a more appropriate outcome, he can put aside the mediation agreement and pursue separation. And so after BIA entered into this mediation agreement of 120 days, um, and, and no allegation that Rule 14, the Rule Against False Reports, had been violated, we sent another communication to the superintendent asking that, pursuant to that authority set out in the CBAs, that he review the mediation agreement to ensure that separation from the department was not, in fact, a more appropriate outcome. The superintendent didn't respond to that second communication from us. The mediation agreement was finalized. Um, and my understanding is that the, the officer at issue is, is currently serving his 120-day suspension, at the end of which he will be back on the force on active, on, you know, on, on duty. Um, and so I think, and, and, and all of this, and I appreciate your patience, is, is sort of on the way to the answer to, to the question of whether there are rules on the books which specifically prohibit membership in the Proud Boys or in other similarly situated groups. I think it's really important um, with respect to this particular case to frame our understanding in, in the context of the fact that there are really two issues here. The first issue has to do with membership in the Proud Boys. The second issue has to do with lying about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I will say to take the second of those first, because I think it's more straightforward, the police department has, to its credit, been very clear in public statements in recent years that lying is a disqualifying offense for a member of the Chicago Police Department. And that's for all kinds of good and important reasons correctly identified by the police department. Um, the, you know, in order for the Chicago Police Department to accomplish its core law enforcement function, the people, its members who are out there making arrests and investigating crimes have to be able to write police reports and testify in court when people get prosecuted for committing crimes. And if a police officer has lied, has been found to have lied, then they're in no position to do that. And in fact, their history, their disciplinary history around lying is information to which criminal defendants and other litigants are entitled. There's a constitutional right to that information. Mm -hmm. um, the police department has been very clear about its view on the importance of truthfulness in sort of abstract settings. But with respect to this particular officer, the decision of the police department was that despite the fact that they found that he'd lied, he'd lied to the department and he'd lied to the FBI, that it was appropriate for him to, to continue to serve as a Chicago police officer. That, in my view, um, you know, th there's, there was a road to an appropriate resolution of this case, which frankly need not even have reached the question of membership in the Proud Boys um, or association with the Proud Boys. And so I think, I think that's a really important framing for this particular case. Right. And, you know, when we 
we did a study we published in 2000, late in 2009. It was a study of police board cases from like 99 through 2008. And we went around to like all a bunch of stakeholders and showed them it before we released it to get feedback. And one of them was Jody Weiss, and who was superintendent at the time, ex-FBI agent, and uh, burst or bronzed his like chief of accountability. And they both said, what the hell is this? Because all the Rule 14 people that were actually found with Rule 14 still weren't fired. And both of them were like, I lie in an investigation or an internal investigation FBI. We're out. That is it. They're getting us out on the street the same day if they possibly could. I don't understand this. But it has been something endemic to the department throughout the years. But they find these people, they sustain these types of allegations, and the people keep their job. Yeah, I, I think um, it's, I absolutely agree that the enforcement and under-enforcement of Rule 14 is a long-standing issue. And in fact, I will say on that note, just on our, on our way back to the specific case, that that question, the question of the enforcement of Rule 14, is so important a topic that it is a consent decree mandated area of inquiry for us. The consent decree requires that we publish a report on exactly that issue, and, and that's forthcoming. Um do you think, and is it, I mean, you may not be able to answer this, but I have to ask it since I have you. So the police department found them making contradictory and one contradictory and one false statements, which, which they sustained charges. In the second investigation, may I add, the second one, not the first one, the relook that you guys asked for. But they didn't rule that to be a Rule 14 invest, uh, violation. Do you think that was because of the consent decree and the fact that you're looking more, you're required to more closely look at Rule 14 violations, or is this just the way the system operates? I I certainly don't know what the what the thinking was in this particular case. Uh, you know, that that is one of the um, one of the pieces of what I think a thorough analysis would look like is if there's a decision not to bring allegations uh, that are rule, which, which certainly seems to apply, you know, if, where that's not present, why not? I think that would be an important part of a thorough analysis. I, I will say on the basis of our regular case review work, this is not the only case we've ever seen where there's a factual finding that someone has said something that wasn't true, but there are no Rule 14 allegations brought. I've only so, been working on this issue for 25 years in Chicago, and you would think it gotten better. We're still here in 2022. I started this in 1996. We're still here in 2022, and they're still finding cops who lied to them, but not giving them a Rule 14 violation. So frustrating, um, indeed. Um, and so, so with all of that said, which is that you know, when it comes to this particular case, I, I, I think that the fact that that there were there were findings of lies here, I, I think is is really critically important when we think about what a material deficiency looked like and meant in this investigation. So so I just I, I sort of got gotten that out on the table. I think to to turn to the other question, which is what the rules have to say about membership in various groups. This is a this is a hard question. I, I I think actually this is a much more nuanced and challenging question than than the question about lying. And what I will say, I again, but you know, we've talked about the case review process and what that means. 
that's not a Monday morning quarterbacking exercise. That's not us looking at the outcome of a BIA or COPA investigation and saying, you know, I, we would have done this differently. This is an exercise in the assessment of investigative quality. Um, and from my perspective, what a sufficient, what an investigation of sufficient quality entails is an analysis of the applicability of the rules. And if there is a thorough and meaningful analysis of whether the rules apply and a determination that they either don't apply or haven't been broken, then then that might look like a sufficient investigation, even if I don't agree with, even if I even if I would have done it differently. And so that's part of what's missing from these investigations is that thorough and meaningful analysis of the applicability of the rules. And, and so as I sort of refer to them, there are two rules specifically that I have in mind. Those are found in the police department's rules of conduct and their rules mm -hmm. two and three. And I, I know that you're familiar with these. With apologies for reading them, I'm going to just I'm going to read the actual language of the rules. No, please. My, my audience probably doesn't know. The precise language. So rule two of, of the department's rules of conduct prohibits any action or conduct which impedes the department's efforts to achieve its policy and goals or brings discredit upon the department. Rule three prohibits any failure to promote the department's efforts to implement its policy or accomplish its goals. I think there are a couple of things to be said about that. One is we have to mean the rules we have on the books. And if we don't mean them, we should take them off the books. Um, I appreciate and I take the department at its word that among its most important goals is to foster trust with the community. Um, we have rules that say officers can't take actions which impede those goals. And I think we need a meaningful analysis of whether membership in the Proud Boys or other similar groups is consistent with the department's goals. Um, the other thing that I will say is, is the rules of conduct for the police department. And again, if these aren't what we mean, we should take them back. Um, there are comments on the rules. And, and particularly with respect to Rule two, the first of those rules we talked about, which prohibits anything which brings discredit upon the department. I want to, I'm going to read you a piece of the comment on the rule. It says that the rule applies to both the professional and private conduct of all members. It prohibits any and all conduct which is contrary to the letter and spirit of department policy or goals, or which would reflect adversely upon the department or its members. It includes not only all unlawful acts by members, but also all acts which, which, although not unlawful in themselves, would degrade or bring disrespect upon members of the department, uh, including public and open association with persons of known bad or criminal reputation. And so I, I think there needs to be a thoughtful conversation about what we mean when we say that. So I think, you know, there there is sort of an impulse in the in the public debate around this issue or the issue of extremism in law enforcement to say, well, there are First Amendment protections and, you know, membership in these groups may not be illegal. That's not a question which we need to reach for purposes of this analysis, because mm -hmm. the police department's rules say that conduct doesn't have to be unlawful to constitute a violation of these rules. Um, and in fact, the comment to rule two specifically raises the prospect that association with persons of bad or criminal reputation in the community might constitute a rule violation, even if it isn't illegal. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I just I totally agree. And I think those rules probably need to be looked at a little bit. But I, I think people were under the misconception 
that there was an obvious rule that said you cannot be involved in a white supremacist organization. And I was thinking, well, one, I think that's just not reality. There are certain rules. And I, I knew and I thought rule two would be enough to, to use against the person. But my other question is, how do you, like, if you're not, I don't think the Proud Boys hand out cards. There may be dues-paying members, I don't know. I'm assuming there are because there has to be some sort of revenue generation to run the organization. But for this officer in particular, he was accused of going to a, attending a Proud Boys-sponsored barbecue and then participating in a online chat forum, Proud Boys online chat forum. The latter one there, it seems you can obviously prove that. I mean, is there any vagueness going on with the first one, like being at a Proud Boys sponsored barbecue? Is that enough of a rule two violation? I'm not trying to defend him. I'm just trying yeah. to get at the issue here that people yeah. are going to ask. No, I, I hear you. I, I think it, it's hard to know because that's not the analysis upon which the police department's result rested. If it had been, right, if there was an analysis here which said that we've thoroughly considered these facts as they match up against this rule, and these facts are insufficient to prove to 51% that this rule has been violated, then that's not an investigative quality issue. I may personally disagree with the outcome, but that's not that's not a, an investigative quality deficiency, right? But that's not what we saw happen here. No, 100%. I think um, this case to me is a little more the outcome of this case is a little more bewildering to me because they had, in my opinion, and I think in the inspector general's opinion, there were obvious rule violations, like lying, um, which, in my opinion, made the case a lot more cut and dry than the murkiness of he attended a barbecue with some bad people. Um, I I was unaware, I have not really studied the case in depth, I was unaware that BIA had two bites at the apple with this investigation. Were they ever, did they ever explain to why, I'm sure they didn't, but did they ever explain why they didn't, why making a contradictory statement and making a false statement were not a Rule 13 violation? You know, I, the police department has offered some comment on this case. I, I, I don't want to speak for them. Um, I will leave that to the police department. See, this is why we need an ordinance for the, every case that gets every case that gets a settlement and discipline. They should have to go in front of um, the city council and answer questions. Um, but since the police and fire, or, I'm sorry, I'm old. The public safety committee hardly ever meets. They probably won't have a hearing on this, although it's been alleged they're going to. What kind of precedent do you think this sets? for future, for other police officers that may be involved in these types of organizations or maybe in the future. Because when I look at this case, what I see is don't lie. If you don't lie, they have no, they're not going to do anything to you. It seems like the lie is what got them the 120 days rather than the membership in the organizations. Uh, you know, I, the, the question of setting a precedent is a critically important one. And we are 
you know, I, I'm a believer in using all of the available oversight hammers for each particular nail. Um, and this is an issue which I'm concerned about in both a, a sort of individual case basis and from a larger programmatic view. Um, individual cases are very important for purposes of the legitimacy and the robustness of the disciplinary system and public-facing legitimacy, right? How people in Chicago's communities feel about calling the police and then who might show up at their door when they do so. There is also this larger programmatic question of what we can learn about the department's view of these issues and its handling of these issues writ large from looking at this on a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I will say, um, after, following our work on this Proud Boys case, we have separately published a, a summary of our work on a separate case having to do with a, a police department member who was alleged to belong to the Oath Keepers. Um, that was a case in which, you know, the police department told our office that they did not view membership in a group alone as a rule violation. I'm not sure that's what the comment, I'm not sure that's what rule two says. That's not how I read it. Um, you know, I think um, in the Oath Keepers case, that was a situation in which the accused police officer admitted having been a member of the Oath Keepers. BIA reached a conclusion that the um, evidence suggesting his membership was unreliable. I think that's hard to square with an admission of membership. Um, and there was a, a conclusion in that case. And again, this I want to be clear in saying this is a separate case from the Proud Boys mm -hmm. incident, but the BIA also noted in the Oath Keepers case that it could not gather any further information about the members association because BIA does not have administrative subpoena power and therefore could not compel the accused member to provide information and documents. In fact, CPD's directives, the department's own orders, already obligate all of its members to cooperate with the Bureau of Internal Affairs, including by providing any documents. And so, you know, again, that's an investigative quality deficit. If we have BIA, you know, de deciding not to proceed on cases based on a misunderstanding of their ability to compel information from the department's members, that's really problematic. And so I guess, wow. I, you know, and I say all of that, today, <laughs> you know, what, what is there to learn here about, you know, about deterrence and, and programmatic handling and so on? Um, that's something we continue to look at and, and certainly something that is that that looms large on my mind. Um, I, I think what what we have seen so far, at least in these in these handful of case studies, you know, gives rise to some concern about how seriously these cases are being taken and how they're being handled. I, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really, wow, shocking. I mean, like, what happens when this guy, this Oath Keeper, gets caught on video doing something? And it comes out in the news, oh, by the way, they had a chance to fire him, but they said his membership in the Oath Keepers, who, by the way, two sets of those Oath Keepers were just convicted for the insurrection. What's this? What's the CPD in the city going to do when that hits the fan? And it's Chicago. That is when you leave hand grenades out there. Okay, so this this may not be, this may be a dumb question, considering that 
it seems like they already have the tools to um, separate these these people from the department, but they're not using them. But I'm going to ask this anyways, because I think it's important. Should the CPD consider looking at their rules and fine tuning them or add updating them to more appropriately deal with circumstances like this? Well, I don't think it's a stupid question at all. And, and I will say two things about it. One, and, and I've sort of, sort of already said this, but, you know, the, the old the trial lawyer in me, repetition for emphasis, yeah. I, I will say, yep. again, I think um, there's a transparency mandate around enforcing the rules that we have on the books. If we say these are the rules, then I think we have an obligation to enforce them. And if we don't mean it, if, if we don't think that these should be the rules, then we should change them so that people know what's allowed and what's not. I think from a sort of fundamental fairness perspective for everybody involved, that there's an obligation there. And so I, I think if, if only for that reason alone, absolutely the rules should be reviewed. To the, to the question of whether the department could or should adopt rules which more clearly and explicitly address white supremacist and extremist groups, you know, that's something that is very much under inquiry. I think um, the Southern Poverty Law Center has recently issued a letter on the handling of these cases in Chicago. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about that letter was that it identified by way of example, other law enforcement organizations and military organizations, which have adopted policies addressed specifically to membership in white supremacist and extremist groups. And I think that you know, best practices or, or practices being adopted in other cities can often offer helpful guidance on mm, what, yeah. what is possible here. And so this is this is complicated and nuanced and challenging, I think, as a policy matter and, and what the rules should say if there if there are to be more explicit, more specific rules. I think it's instructive and important that there are other police departments who have adopted rules like that. Yeah, I have always, I've always viewed, I've always been bewildered by the problems unions in general have at rooting out bad members and going all in to support the worst of their members and throwing the interest of the bulk of their members to the wolves to support the one. That happened with John Burge. Um, it happened with uh, Jason Van Dyke, if I got the name right again. That's what happens. It would seem to me that police departments, like Superintendent Brown, leaders of big departments or any department, would be like, hey, this person's a minority. He's got to go because he is hurting all our other officers. He's hurting our mission. Because what the community, if they see this and when it makes the news, they're just going to paint all our officers with the proud boy and Oath Keepers uh, tag. And it's been a problem in Chicago forever. You go into underserved communities, that's all you hear about, white supremacists, white supremacists. And why I don't doubt it, I know some cops, and they aren't white supremacists, but they're getting painted with that. And it's always, oh man, it's always aggravated me, and I'm just getting more aggravated having this conversation. <laughs> because well, these guys are easily separate. Se it's easy to separate these guys. You know that's bad use the rules, and they seem like they're not doing anything. I think it is, it's really important to say that um, really good and honorable people are wearing the uniform of the Chicago Police Department. And 
we owe them a thoughtful conversation about what it means to determine that the accused officers in these cases should continue to wear that uniform too. Absolutely. I don't know. I have met so many. Like, I, if I called them and asked them, started using my role, and I said, calling them, do you want to be partnered with this guy? What the answers would be no. Down the line, the answers would be no. Um, but it's just so aggravating because they're hurting their own officers. Um, and these two cases really, um, as you know, it's bringing me back to just all the research I did on John Burge and just trying to figure out why they just kept keeping him. And this is, um, wow, and membership in the Oath Keepers is not a fireable Being involved in a white supremacist organization is not bringing discredit upon the department. Um, I'm just ranting, you don't have to comment, <laughs> but it's aggravating. It does also, by the way, um, and this is something people have to take into concern, it also breeds um, distrust within the department itself because cops see other cops getting fired for things that they think aren't that big. And then you have a guy that's a member of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And I, I haven't made inquiries, but I'm going to after this, after this interview because I'm wondering how many conspiracy theories there are out there about why this person kept the job within the department. There certainly are both internal and external legitimacy concerns here. Because I know with the Sergeant Muhammad case, he shot a uh, mentally handicapped kid on his front lawn at like five in the morning, four in the morning, and he got a rather light sentence from my perspective. And I know from many cops' perspectives. And oh boy, there were massive, massive conspiracy theories about why he kept his job, which, by the way, personally, I think he should have been fired. But it also, it, it hurts the department because now you're breeding this distrust or distrust of the bosses, the system, the rules, all of that just continues to trickle down. Okay. Um, are there parameters by what, what types of cases can and can't be mediated? I know when they started bringing this in while Alana Rosenzweig was still with IPRA, she was the first chief administrator. And we used to meet with her every six months as part of the Coalition for Police Accountability. And we had a great, great relationship until about her time she was leaving because they had mediated a domestic violence case where a guy had beat up his wife. And we went berserk. And we're like, you told us no violence cases. You told us no, um, you know, brutality cases. And she couldn't really answer that. Are there, guard, are there any guardrails about what cases can and cannot be Basically, I mean, they're called mediated, but it's basically more, I guess it's a mediation, but to me, I view it as plea bargaining. Um, this is not an entirely satisfying answer, but but the, the <laughs> state of the mediation program is certainly in evolution. The um, There are a whole series of consent decree requirements around the mediation program, and that is another consent decree mandated area of evaluation for us. And so we're sort of in the process of looking at that. And so we'll have more to say about that down the road than I do right now. But that's certainly one of the questions we're looking at is, is you know, how, how cases become eligible and ineligible for mediation and what that means and what the control, what controls are in place. Right. And I, as a 
time saver and cost and um, and cost cutting. We were originally somewhat in favor of mediation in cases that were obvious where the misconduct, something was on video instead of dragging it out a year and a half. Something minor. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, minor, no violence, no brutality. Um, I guess this doesn't have in it, but it just, this smells so much like Chicago, like there was some kind of backdoor deal cut. And I know we don't know what actually happened there, but this, this certainly seems like some kind of backdoor deal was cut. Um, and this is my own rant. Um, and I've had it for a lot of things, uh, especially in Chicago. We talk about diversity and that we're going to get different decisions if we diversify the leadership. I've been doing this since 1996. This decision, the way this worked out, could have, could have been in any of those cases. And I looked back on the CPD misconduct to the early 70s with Burge. Man, this case could have happened in any one of those times. And whether it was a white superintendent or black superintendent, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Mm, okay. This has been such a frustrating interview to do. I really appreciate you taking the time, but it is so frustrating because it also seems like, am I am I wrong in this? But this case is over. BIA, unless the media pushes them into it, BIA is not going to have to talk about this anymore. Unless the city council miraculously holds a hearing. Uh, there are there are two resolutions pending calling for a hearing uh, before the public safety committee on this issue. I, from I think the answer in terms of this particular case, this particular officer, if the penalty has been served, I, I from my perspective, I, yep. I think the administrative double jeopardy bell has rung. Right, and I've been, you know, um, we're going to be uh, once again pushing our police settlement ordinance. And which forces in monthly meetings of the public, uh, the police and fire committee, kind of got the police and fire committee um, to talk about these cases where the leaders have to come up. And I don't want, as you say, Monday morning quarterbacking. I certainly don't want politicians doing Monday mo Monday morning quarterbacking on each individual case. But the fact that the heads that I, I think the leader should have to be able to come forward and explain. The reasons and rationales um and not necessarily i don't think i agree with you the punishment has been served i don't think you can go you should be able to go in and retroactively change what happened um unless there was some corruption involved the, the case is over but the leader should be able should be forced to come forward and explain their actions and if the city so deems to not keep their services then they do it but this idea that this is i mean this is chicago so most likely not the elections are going to come and go and nothing's going to happen because it's going to get out of the media. Um, it's a great it's a great case for a mayoral and aldermanic elections news cycle, um, but I think this is probably going to die. And and the fact that I play reasonably close attention and I didn't know about the Proud Boys case, I mean the Oath Keepers case. Did the Oath Keepers case make the news? It did. It did, and okay. it was just summarized in our quarterly report that came out uh, middle of this month. Okay. I will go back and look at that and be even more frustrated by what I'm reading. Um, wow, 2022, 2023, and we cannot get um, can't get rid of white supremacists. One guy that admits being part of the group. Um, I wonder how many black officers want to be partnered with him. 
I know you can't comment, but I'll say that. How many black officers want to be partnering with this guy? If you're calling for help and you're a black or brown officer, do you want this? Do you think this guy's going to respond? Either of these guys. <sighs> All right. Deborah Whitsberg, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been um, incredibly informative, incredibly frustrating, but that's not your fault. You always do it very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. Once again, I'd like to thank Deborah Whitsberg for sitting down with us. Only in Chicago is lying and giving a contradictory statement. What does that mean? It means it was a lie. There is the truth, and then there's everything else. When it's not the truth, it is a lie. Only in Chicago is lying not filing a false oral report or is providing um, a contradictory statement or outright lying in reports. It's unbelievable. And remember, this is the same police department mayor, under Mayor Lightfoot, under Superintendent David Brown, that is trying to tell you they are making incredible process uh, progress in the consent decree, under the consent decree, these reforms and CPD is just reforming all over the place. Does this sound like reform? This could have happened in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010. What decade in history would you have, would you have not, could you have not imagined a police department, Chicago Police Department specifically, keeping white supremacist cops? The progress, Mayor Lightfoot, the progress, Superintendent David Brown, the progress is in when you move to fire these people. What a joke. A total, CPD is a total failure. Total failure. It's just, you, you think you make all this progress. I've worked on the police accountability system in Chicago for 27 years. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I've been doing this work in one form or another since 1996. And we, and we haven't even gotten far enough that we can get the accountability system and the police department and the mayor to fire a proud boy and white supremacist uh, oath keeper cop. It's unbelievable. Total failures, all of them. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, next week we feature an interview with Jim Daly from the Chicago Reader discussing elections for the police district councils, part of the elected uh, community commission ordinance. He'll be discussing the ordinance and the, um, and the elections that are coming up. I will this new elected commission and these district councils lead to reform? <laughs> I don't know. A lot of people are so behind it. In my 27 years, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have a clue why. It sounds good. I think it's democracy theater, to be honest with you. I hope I'm wrong, but I think this is democracy theater. One of the problems we've had in the police accountability moves when everyone wants democracy, democracy, democracy. And I'm a full supporter of democracy, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think they feel like, well, we can vote for these people on the local commissions. The people will rise up and vote for the right people and the right people will have the right power and they will do the right thing. No, and I don't even know if they have the powers to do that. We'll have to discuss the ordinance. We're trying to get people from the commission on the podcast. Um, they have been slow to respond. Adam Gross, who is the executive director or head, I forgot what exactly title, get moving. We've been trying to get them on um, because I have my doubts. And I think pretty much the commission has already issued some come head to head with the city, the Chicago Police Department on a couple issues, and the police department just basically ignored them. 
And there has been a dust up in the media about it. So if that trend stays, then th these things are going to be the overall commission is going to be worthless. And these district ones will probably be worthless too. I hope I'm wrong. We'll see. Maybe Jim will change my mind. Okay. Thanks again for listening. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, subscribe to the podcast, visit our Patreon, visit cjpnation.org if you want to get involved. If you got ideas for people you want to see, hit us up on social media, Instagram, Twitter, you know, topics you want covered. Um, it's, uh, I'm open. We're all open to ideas here. We'd really appreciate some feedback. All right. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I will see you next week. Thank you.